Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn over to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, we'll be looking actually the end of chapter 49 a little bit too. I want to read to you a portion of John Lennon's song, Imagine. I won't sing it. That would that'd be tragic. He says this, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below you, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It's, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for. No religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be one. That is, they are some of the most tragic words you can possibly imagine. Do you know what would happen if we had no God? You know who we'd live for? I wouldn't live for you. And you wouldn't live for me. We would all live for ourselves. It would be the most chaotic. I mean, this guy is a dreamer off the charts. It would be a terrible, terrible world to live, to live in. I want you to imagine something different. Something that's true. Something that's real. It's framed in the song we just sang. He's sovereign over us. What happens if we embrace that in the core of our soul? You start imagining what that looks like in your life, and you'll find out it changes everything. What I want to do today in the life of Joseph I want to look through this familiar passage. And I want you to notice uh, three results of embracing God's sovereignty, of really believing in your core that he's sovereign over us. How will, what will that look like in life? And the first one is found here in, in chapter 50, verses 1 to 14. And, 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 and I would argue that it'll look like it will evidence itself in God-centered commitments to others. Let, let, me, let me just go back for just a second to verse uh, 29 of chapter 40. And, and remember, I, I, these dates aren't exactly right. I, I'm, I'm dealing with some just general categories. But roughly, Joseph is about 20 years. He's really 17. About 20 years, he's with his family together. And then he goes into captivity, do you remember? He's, he's sent down. And for about 20 years, he's in Egypt without his family. They finally come in and join him, and there's reconciliation. And it's about roughly, not quite, but roughly another 20 years when they're together in Egypt. And it's right at this point so Joseph's around 58 years of age. 
it's right at this point that Jacob dies. And that's where we pick up in the story. Chapter 49, verse 29. He's just given all his blessings as James looked at for us last week. Then he gave them these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my father, my fathers, in the cave in the field of the Ephron, of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre and Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving these instructions to his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And we're going to find out that Joseph and his brothers, but Joseph in particular, weeps and cries in chapter 50, verse 1, at the death of his father. But do you realize the commitment that his father is asking him to take? Now look, they're going to have a, a, a ceremony here. They're going to embalm his body. You normally embalm a, a person's body. The Egyptians did it over a period of 40 days. And, and you mourn, but you don't normally mourn for just a normal person for that long a period of time. Even the Pharaoh himself, the records tell us, are around 70 plus days of mourning. That's how much they mourn for Jacob in this passage. It's incredible. And, and I don't know. I, I, I don't want to psychologize a text too much or anything like that. But, but however, they go through that entire process and the easiest thing to do would be to have buried him there in Egypt. Do you, do you know the effort that it's going to take to take him back and bury him in Canaan where he wants to be buried? And, and, and when you read the text, Joseph is a, indirectly a little bit concerned how to ask this of Pharaoh because he doesn't even ask him directly. Notice, notice what the text says, chapter 50. So Joseph throws himself on his father and weeps over him and, 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 and kisses him. And he, he, he weeps. I mean, I, he does it. He loves his dad. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. No problem there. And the Egyptians mourned for, mourned for him for 70 days. That's way over the top. That's the kind of thing you do for a pharaoh. It's amazing. When the days of mourning had passed, look at what Joseph does. A man who is going to be faithful to his commitments. Joseph said to Pharaoh's court. He doesn't even go directly to Pharaoh because there's a little bit of tension here. And my guess is, Pharaoh likes Joseph in Egypt. He doesn't want any, he doesn't want him leaving and not coming back. And the easiest thing would be just to bury dad in Egypt. I mean, look, they, they mourn for him for 70 days, for goodness sakes. But that's not what he does. So he talks to Pharaoh's court. 
If I have found favor in your eyes, are you kidding? You've preserved a whole nation. Speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now, let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So he, he, he goes about it wisely. He makes an appeal. He says, you've met Jacob, and, and Pharaoh says, go. But, but even when he goes, he doesn't go with everybody. He leaves his children back, the young ones, which is a sign that he's going to come back, verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father. And here's an amazing thing, folks. Pharaoh sends all of his officials and, and a vast amount of his army in this whole process of taking him back and bury him. Interesting to me. Why all is he doing that? Perhaps he, to honor Jacob, and perhaps to make sure Joseph comes back. Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt. Besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. I mean, this was one processional. When they reached the, flesh, uh, the threshing floor of Atad, Near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. This is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Israel, Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. Do you see the point? Jacob. And Joseph had understood this now in all of its fullness. That the place that they ultimately would call home was Canaan, not Egypt. He had heard it through the blessings. He had talked with Jacob and he come to the end and Jacob was saying, son, I know you'll honor me at my death, but I want to be buried there because that's where we're ultimately going. And Joseph, no matter what the cost and how he had to talk it through and think about it, what's the wise way to talk to Pharaoh, the whole thing. He was overwhelmed with this is what God wants me to do because that's what it's all about. Do you see that? God-centered commitments. Do we need them in our day as Christians? Where we say, God... We know where all of history is going. We know what Christ has done. We understand, and we want to make commitments today. 
whatever the cost, that are honoring to you. Whether it's faithfulness to our mates, consistently working with our children, reaching out to to family members and employees and employers and the whole thing. It's it's all of life, isn't it? See, Joseph at this point in his life, you think about it, this guy is wealthy and rich and has servants. Who needs God? Joseph. He could never sing Lenin's song because he felt this as a wealthy man that could have lived for Egypt, but instead, because he saw God as sovereign, all of life was being faithful to those commitments which honor God. And they're the decisions he made. If you embrace the sovereignty of God, I mean embrace it in your soul. It will change your commitments. God will use that to empower you to become faithful to those commitments. Will you let him do that work in your life? We've all got, you know what they are too, don't you? I mean, I gave you a couple, but you, you sit there and you're like, oh boy, yeah, right? I mean, we all have that. We know, we know. It's not like, you know, I, I don't know what a God-centered commitment even looks like. Well, we know. We know it's sacrifice and it's cost and it's wisdom. It's all that stuff. Live in light of that reality, will you? Living under the sovereignty of God will impact your commitments. They will be God-centered commitments. It will also result in God-centered compassion. Look at what he says here in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Does that amaze you? Folks, do you realize it has been almost 20 years, not quite, but almost 20 years that he had that encounter with his brothers in which he said, guys, I forgive you because of how great my God is. I forgive you. I'm here in this moment to protect you guys in the midst of a famine. It's okay. I forgive you. And now we come 20 years. Dad dies. And they get together and they say, what if he still holds a grudge? Now, I've wondered about this passage. Does that mean they carried a grudge for, I mean, does that mean they carried guilt for 20 years? Possibly. But there there was something interesting um, that that, that caught me from the passage James was preaching on. Back in chapter 49, remember, remember when Um, Jacob is giving out his blessings. And he gives this blessing to Joseph. He says this in verse 22 of chapter 49. 
He says, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. And the, the idea is, you just can't stop Joseph. I mean, you just, be, why? Because of Joseph? No, because of God. But then he says this. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. And what's fascinating is, but his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Israel and of Jacob. And, 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 and many scholars, and I would agree on this one, I think what, what Jacob is saying in his final blessing to Joseph is, Joseph, what God is doing in your life can never be stopped. And if archers are shooting at you out of hostility, and literally it's the word out of holding a grudge against you. Same word that we find in chapter 50. Same word. So brothers that are saying, we can't stand you for what you, dad favors you. And all these brothers are shooting archers. And, And Jacob says, although they did all of that against you, that never stopped anything, as he goes on to say, because of the Savior God, because of the Shepherd God, because of the Sovereign God who watches over you. That's what Jacob says. Jacob's emphasis was on the sovereignty of God. However, I wonder if what the brothers heard were the archers who were shooting. Do you see? So one of the last words that, that Jacob says is, they were trying to nail you. And they're going like, yeah. Do you think, do you think he's like really still upset about it? And, and the, the blessing was about the sovereignty of God. And I wonder if they didn't even really hear that. Because here in chapter 50, dad has just died, got back. The first thing they say is, don't you do to us what we did to you. We held a grudge against you. Do you still hold a grudge against us? And what does Joseph say in response? Look at this. This is, this is terrific stuff. So they, they sent word to Joseph. Okay, so, you know, again, if you want to say something hard, you don't do it direct, you know? Just like Joseph did it through the court guys to talk to Pharaoh. They're going to use a similar approach. So they have a representative go and represent them and say, will you go and tell this to Joseph? So that's what they do. So they sent word to Joseph. Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I asked you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs that they committed in treating you so badly. Now, folks, I have to tell you something. And I don't know this for sure. Do I think Jacob ever said that? I don't think he did. That matter was settled. Jacob was talking in chapter 49 about the sovereignty of God. But you know, when you're desperate, hey, tell him dad said to forgive us. You know, the guy you just buried after the long trip up to Canaan and the 70 days of mourning and all that stuff. That's what he said. I think that's all they're doing, to be honest with you. Okay? Now, please, now, now they're speaking through the, through the person. Now, please, forgive the sins of the servants 
of God, of the God of your father. When their message came to Joseph, what does he do? What's the text say? He wept. Now, he weeps at the beginning of chapter 50. Fair enough. You know the last time we find him weeping in Genesis? Three times. Back in chapters 43, 44, and 45. When he first met his brothers again and was overwhelmed with all that they were feeling and how he was feeling, three different times Joseph weeps. And finally, when they reconcile, he weeps so loudly that Pharaoh's house can hear it. And then you don't hear about any weeping again until chapter 50. Why does he weep? I think in that moment, he says, they can't see it. I mean, I, I explained it to them. I've lived it out before them for 20 years, almost 20 years. And, and now they sent a rep back to me. They don't even come directly. Make up a lie. And beg that I will forgive them. How could he have responded after that? Fine. I mean, he could have done a lot of things, right? He could have checked, oh, you guys, I get so sick. I mean, he could have done all kinds of stuff. But he takes a very different approach. Look at verse 18. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they're just so desperate, folks. They, they sent the message, you know, dad, and forgive, and they come in before him, and they're just, everybody's down. And that, that you know, that, that, that dream he had as a 17-year-old, he must be looking at all this and going, man, we hit, we, this, this thing just keeps happening. Because right? they're, they're just bowing down beside, before him again. Joseph says to them, don't be afraid. Do you know he says that twice in this passage? Verse 19, and again in verse 20 then, so then, don't be afraid. He could have been ticked off. He could have done all kinds of things. And all you see as they come and bow down before him is compassion and love. And twice he says, don't be afraid. And let me tell you why. Number one, I am not God. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? She's one other time in Genesis. You know, and, and when, 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 when Rachel couldn't have any kids and she said, do something to Jacob. And Jacob says, hey man, Oh, not man, she's a woman, but uh, um, am I in the place of God? Like, hello, I'm not God. I can't, like, I can't do God stuff. I'm a human. And here is the second most powerful man in all the nation of Egypt, and his brothers have fallen down, and the only thing he can say is, don't be afraid, get up. I'm not God. It's, it's not my job 
to mete out vengeance and justice when people offend and do these kinds. I'm not God. I'm a human who believes in the sovereignty of God. Isn't it exactly what Paul says in Romans 12? Paul says, when people hurt you and come after you, remember, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's not my job. You know what I've thought? Second Peter, uh, first Peter chapter 2. The Bible talks about our blessed Lord who when people are reviling him and attacking him on the cross, what does he do? He entrusts himself to the Father. Do you see? Now here's the amazing thing. Jesus is God. I mean, when Joseph said, I am not God, Jesus could have said, I am God, because he is. But he set an example for us of entrusting himself to God. Even, even God, the God-man entrusted himself to the Father and said, you will watch over me. Do you see? Well, like if Jesus does it, you know, I think we can do it. You know, by his grace, we can do it, folks. Don't play God when it comes to offense from other people. You know, that's the first thing I want to do. My wife gets under my skin. I know that's unusual for Sherry. I get it. But, but nonetheless, <laughs> there are moments. Okay. My gut response is to play God. Yeah? I'll give her the silent treatment. That'll fix her. If she's not going to worship at the shrine of Doug's pleasure and comfort and ease, she will face his judgment. Yeah, I know we laugh at it, but that's the games we play, don't we? I play them. I, I, I wish I could tell you I never play those games. I, that would grow up. But I'm always in process. And Joseph looks at his brothers and says, I'm not God. But let me tell you who he is. <laughs> See what he says in the passage? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you understand something? I, I think back in chapter 45, when Joseph first said this, he understood what God was doing right then and there, preserving them in the midst of a famine. I, I, I get that. But as he's been with the family for 20 years and he's heard the blessings and talked with Jacob and rehearsed the promises about the land and what God will do through Abraham and blessings of the nation, everything, ultimately the world, all through Abraham. As he hears all this stuff, he says, guys, God's sovereignty is so much bigger than anybody thought back then. He, he's preserving a people that he's going to send back into the land 
And as you continue the story, there's ultimately a Messiah that's going to come. He didn't know all that. I get it. But, but the story just continues to Jesus, doesn't it? It's powerful. And, and at this time of his life, almost 60 years of age, he's like going like, I thought God was sovereign 20 years ago. Like, I really believe he's sovereign today. I'm not God. I don't have to mete out judgment and vengeance. It's not my job. But the God that I do know is a God who I've learned even more and more is sovereign over everything. Here's something important. Joseph never minimizes their sin against him. Did did you see that? He calls it what it is. It's the word that is normally translated evil. And Joseph says, you meant it for my evil, to harm me, to destroy me, to hurt me. It was evil. He never minimizes that act. It was an evil act by people. However, God uses that. It is all part, he is so sovereign that he'll take that very act of wickedness against to put his man right where he needs to be to become the the leader right next to Pharaoh so the people can come down and they can be preserved and grow so they can ultimately take him back into the land. Do you see? And, and, And Joseph is saying, God is so incredibly sovereign that the very act that you did against me to destroy me is the very thing he worked through to save all of us. Folks, that's amazing, isn't it? It really, you know the verse. I mean, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, everybody goes to Romans 8, 28. But it's true, isn't it? This act, whatever we face, God is the one that works all things together for what? For good. You think about the death of Christ in Acts 2. Peter is preaching and he says to the people listening, you are absolutely culpable and absolutely responsible because you did something vile. You put on the cross an innocent man that did nothing wrong. He was a spokesman of God. He was the Messiah. But God worked through that very act of wickedness, putting him on a cross, to use the cross as the place where he would be able, he would save the world. Do you see? I mean, this is so God. You just just see it everywhere in the scriptures. And what Joseph knew a little bit here, we've seen played out through the Old Testament and ultimately played out in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ in all of its fullness. I mean, when when Joseph says, God is sovereign over us, therefore I can extend forgiveness to others because the very thing that they do to destroy me, a God is so sovereign that he can turn that thing around to accomplish things that you could never possibly imagine. Folks, do you believe that? I I, I wrote down, because I was afraid I'd forget the words, Carmelo, so I wrote them down. Here it is. Even what the enemy meant for evil, you turn it for our good 
and for your glory. Do you, do you see that? You say, you don't know what people did to me, think Biner. I don't. I may not. I may not. That's fair. That's fair. But I do know a sovereign God. And if you respond out of faith, faithfully, wisely, based upon those situations, God will not allow that to destroy you. Matter of fact, only he will turn that thing in such a way that the people are still absolutely culpable for what they did. He will turn that in such a way that you'll look back one day and say, wow, only God. Do you see that? That's what this passage is telling us. And Joseph has embraced this in his soul for 20 years. He sees the picture so much more clearly. And it changes everything. Ah, so it's okay for people to hurt us. Absolutely not. Jesus says, I would rather that people that live a life of offending believers, I'd rather that you take a huge millstone, wrap it around their head, take them out to the middle of the sea of Galilee and drop them in. Now that's serious. Isn't it? So this is not minimizing the sin. God never minimizes the sin. Never. He maximizes the sovereignty of God. And that's what gives us hope, brothers and sisters in Christ. It changes everything in our lives. So what does it mean to embrace? Verse 21. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. Literally in the Hebrew it says, he spoke to their heart. He got as close to them as he could. Guys, you want to say like, you knuckleheads, I've been telling you this. Duh, get out. No, it doesn't do any of that. We would, some of us might, you know. He says, guys, I'm not God. God is sovereign. So you don't have to be afraid. We're fine. I'm going to continue to provide for you. And the Bible says he speaks to their heart. He gets as close to them and face to face. You ever do that with your kids? You know, honey, I love you. Okay. You know what I mean? You do that sometimes. Just slow down. Just slow down. And, And I almost picture Joseph just saying, I love you. It's fine. What would happen to our relationships if we lived this way, folks? Do you see? Without ever excusing the sin. And yes, people must repent before there be reconciliation. Yes, all true, all true, all true. But will it not change our perspective if we really say God is so great that even what you've done cannot destroy me, but God can turn it for his good? That's what it says. We either believe it or we don't. And I bank my life on that one. Lastly, to rest under his sovereignty, God-centered commitments, man, we stay with them. God-centered compassion because he's sovereign. And lastly, God-centered confidence. Look at verse 22. 
Joseph stayed in Egypt along with his father's family. He lived 110 years, so he, he lived another 50 years, roughly. And saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. Now listen to this. God will surely come to your aid, or or literally, God will visit you and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear on oath and said, God will surely come to your aid. God, again, God will surely visit you. And then you must carry my bones up from this place because I'm a sojourner here too. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, they placed him in a coffin in Egypt. A man living with all of the splendor of Egypt who says, this isn't my home. Guys, God is going to visit you one day and take you back to that land. And when he does, you take my bones with you. I don't want them left here in Egypt. This is not my final resting place. I want it up there. In Exodus chapter 3, The Bible says after several hundred years, God visits his people. You know that term is used another time over in Luke chapter 1, verse 68? After hundreds of years, no prophets on the scene, no message. And Zechariah says, God is visiting his people in the coming of Christ. And Joseph believed in the God who would continue his purposes long after Joseph was dead. And Zechariah was espousing the same thing. And you and I live between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And it's been, we've been waiting 2,000 years. But he will visit us again. Do you see that? There's always this forward-lookingness to the people of God. This isn't the final place for us. That is. And that changes everything. This God is so sovereign. I know what he's going to do. And folks, you and I as believers know so much more than Joseph. We've seen so much more of the storyline with Jesus. How much more should we, as spirit-empowered believers, say, God is God. And I can live with confidence today because I know what he's going to do tomorrow. Whether I'm here or not, God is God. That's a whole lot better than Lennon's song. You know, imagine all the people. You know, that's, uh, it, it's sad to me. It's really, I, I, I shouldn't say it like that. It, it is a pretty song, and it's, but it's a terrible message. You know, it's a terrible message. 
you want to imagine something, imagine this. Imagine if each one of us, as born-again believers, embraced the sovereignty of God as much as Joseph did. That's what I want you to imagine. How would it change your life? How would it change your commitments? How would it change your relationships toward others? How would it change your confidence in what God is going to do in the future? I would argue, folks, it would change everything. Father, we are such a needy people. We were never meant to live life apart from you, which is why you sent your son, that we might find forgiveness from you, that we might be brought into a relationship with you in which we are forever your children, secure, safe, forgiven. And then, Lord, meant to live on a journey where we just learn what it means to embrace your sovereignty so that it affects everything in our lives, Lord. Father, through your spirit, will you touch the hearts of your children this day? I don't know what those commitments are for them. I don't know the people in their lives that they've perhaps harbored incredible bitterness against because they've said it's ruined my life. Lord, would you change their perspective on those things? And Father, I don't know what folks, brothers and sisters here may be struggling, maybe even as they get close to death's door, with what's going to happen next. What's going to happen next is they will be embraced by the God who is for them because of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. May we rest secure in you. And if there's anyone here, Lord, that has never bowed the knee to Jesus, who is the ultimate one who has visited us. He is the ultimate Joseph as God who has forgiven us. May this be the day that they bow the knee. In his name I pray, amen.